This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. What does open banking mean for consumers? It could mean better control of one's finances. This collaborative model allows for banking data to be shared with third-party players, and it could revolutionize the financial services industry. Yet, as data breaches become a more frequent occurrence, this trend has raised concerns about privacy and security. Our next guest says that this is a model that will have a huge impact on financial institutions, both new and old, and says that it looks at data as currency. Jane Barrett is a chief advocacy officer for MX Technologies, a Utah-based firm providing data to financial institutions and fintechs. She's also a financial educator through LinkedIn Learning. She joins me here in studio along with Mukul Panda, who is an editor-in-chief and executive director of Knowledge at Wharton. Nice to meet you, Jane. Great to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Mukul. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, so give us a sense of, of what this data as currency really means. So there is a cliche that says data is the new oil, and there is absolute value in data. And even if you just go back 10 years and look at the market caps of the top 10 companies globally, 10 years ago, those top 10 companies made products and services. Today, 50% of those companies are database platforms. Google, Facebook, Alibaba, Tencent. Like It is a absolutely fundamental shift in terms of the way even the market views the value of data. Now, when you think about traditional currency transactions, it assumes that people exchange cash for you know goods and services of equal value. But when you talk about data being currency, do you think the trade is on equal terms always or is it more one-sided? What do you think? So it is still very much early days in this sort of data as currency world, but it is absolutely a one-sided trade. The buyers at this point, or the they're not even buying, they're basically amassing, assessing, consolidating data, and then using it. They are the ones that can put that data to work in the economic model, and the generators of that data um, are basically getting nothing. So if you think about... You know, let's just say a social media platform says our user is worth $120 to us in the course of a year, right? And to you, that may, that actually sounds like, okay, that's not, they give me my photos and keep in touch with my family. And, you know, that actually sounds like a decent trade, except for when you realize that that is aggregate across the world, right? right? So if you're looking at, you know, a New York City-based person who is earning half a million dollars a year, of course they're worth more from an advertising model and a monetization model than someone, you know, in a village in an emerging market. So, uh, Jean, you spoke uh, recently at a Fearless in Fintech conference in San Fran- at Wharton, San Francisco, mm-hmm. where you presented a paper on, on data as currency. And I, I found a very intriguing term that you used in the paper, which is data exhaust. <laughs> what exactly is that and why should consumers care about that? So data exhaust is not that different to actual like the environmental exhaust generated by by uh, cars. So if you think of everything you do in the online world, every site you visit, everything you click on, you're being tracked and that is being, you know, again, captured in a database somewhere and made up into this sovereign view of, of who you are. Um, it's now going into the offline world through tracking through your phone, for example, and location tracking. So there is this massive amount of data that you are generating on a daily basis just across all industries that is being captured and sold and resold and then, you know, 
targeted right back at you to sell you more things. Yeah, but that, that's the expectation I think that a lot of people have now. It's almost become the norm rather than the exception. It's. I think the... It is absolutely the norm that you know that you're throwing off data everywhere you go, but do you know what's actually happening to it? Right. Do you know how it's being monetized, who it's being sold to? You know, did you know that there is a social map of you and your family and your friends and the places you go? And I did hear of one amazing story of a, a certain social platform that could tell just from phone locations whether people were having an affair. Right, because the phones were technically too close to each other, right? And they know that the phones are usually close to this other person ninety percent of the time, and then yeah. this other. So there is a lot of data that's being thrown off in this idea of data exhaust that may actually, if people truly knew a the value of it and b the implications, um, that they'd be maybe be a little more careful. One of the things that you wrote in your paper is if someone's data can no longer be optimized to just sell them more stuff. The shift to data-driven innovation is now a strategic imperative for companies everywhere. Now, what kind of data-driven innovation did you have in mind, and and what sense has it become a strategic imperative? So at the moment, the differential is still, and I I say this with love, I came from the marketing and data world, I actually started my career in data marketing, and this idea of we will take your data and we will segment you. Right? And so now we know what products and services to serve up to you, how much we can charge you, and you know how we can retain you as a customer. But the differentiation is all in like the service, let's just say. Um, right now, like the, across multiple industries, no, no, we will talk about financial services, but I'll use an example, say, from travel. Um, I fly my family of five, I'm Australian, if you couldn't tell, from the U.S. to Australia every Christmas, usually right. within a couple of days. And yet every time, usually around this time of year, I start to panic because I haven't booked tickets as yet. And I've digitally put my hand up. I'm flying a family of five to Australia, right? Yeah. So guess who gets paid? Priceline gets paid. Google gets paid. Facebook gets Everyone who says, oh, she visited my site in terms of her search. But I still have to do all the heavy lifting, right? Why? I have, like, I have loyalty programs. Why are not airlines saying, hey, based on her history... You know, these are the sort of seats she gets. This is how much she's paid. Why not? Like, I will pay you today for that if you reserve those seats for me, but I'll pay you 20% less because you shouldn't be paying Facebook and Google and everybody else on that path. And so that sort of, I mean, that's a almost very simple version of it, but optimizing a product or service experience without having to go and like spray and pray, which is still the technical marketing approach, right. um, is like that is what the, the data-driven innovations should look like. So then is it a situation where the companies are, are not taking advantage of this opportunity or they, they haven't ramped up their operations to the point to get to be able to do that? So, I mean, that's such a great question, Dan, because data literacy is still something that's not really talked about. Sure, like everyone yeah. will say they're digital liter- digitally literate, yeah. which 20 years ago was a challenge. And now we're seeing this another whole wave of people needing to be for their sake of their careers d- data literate. And at the moment, that literacy sits within the marketing department. So guess what it gets used for? Yeah. To sell you more stuff. That's why a lot of people at times, when they hear the term big data, they still get scared yeah. when, when you have it. Yeah, there's huge opportunities for much, much better engagement and service, but yeah. it's been used, again, just to target and sell you. What does it mean to be data literate? So I think, I mean, how to, at the very least, how to extract insights and act on them. Right, Because at the moment, so much of the infrastructure and investment goes into getting the data in. And now companies have data lakes. Great. We have a data lake. 
uh, it's full of exhaust. We don't really know that much. What are we going to do with it? So taking it from that infrastructural data lake, being able to structure data sets to truly drive what a business does versus what a business sells. And those insights, you know, they should be from the board level down. And if you don't have board directors who are data literate, how then can the executive team and all the way down work? So what does it mean for a company to um, – what are the implications for, for, for a data-driven innovation for companies in the financial services industry? And, uh, and, and do you think the fintech industry is taking the lead in this regard? I think the implications for financial institutions especially are actually very positive. Like financial institutions are the trusted stewards of our money, right? what we wake up every day and go out we, we and get. Hope. <laughs> we hope. Yes. Uh, you know, but globally still there is infrastructure in place from you know a fiduciary perspective and from a safety and soundness perspective to make sure that your money is protected. Yeah. And each country approaches it mildly differently, but for the most part, we've managed to avoid runs on banks for a really long time. Yeah. So from implications for institutions is that can they go from being a steward or a fiduciary of your money to being a steward or fiduciary of your data as well? And, you know, the the race is wide open. Anyone, any company could step up. Clearly, the big tech companies are endeavoring to do that right now. Um, but at the same time, the financial institutions are making moves within open banking, especially to start to control that flow of data. Um, I'll take a, a little step back. So traditionally, when you wanted to share your banking data, say with a financial technology company, I'm going to set a budget, I'm going to apply for a loan through one of these startup lenders. It was you would enter your username and password. Right? And it was called screen scraping. So everything that you saw on your screen, then your um, whoever you shared the data with could also see it. And they could continue to see it. Until you changed your password, they could continue to see that. Right. So that created an enormous amount of data exhaust out there in the world around your specific financial data, which tells you a lot about who you are. Um, with open banking, the move is to go from username and passwords to token-based exchanges. So no longer would you be sharing what is incredibly confidential information out with the ecosystem. It would just be a token exchanged back and forth. So that does start to reduce the amount of data exhaust from in the financial services industry. Globally, they seem to be the first industry to really be doing this at scale. So to your question, McCall, there is you know very positive implications around this. What are some of the relationships you see between open banking and, and data as currency? So it's step one, I would say. Um, if we truly get to this idea where I can take my financial data or any data and actually exchange it for value at my terms at a fair market value with transparency and insight, like open, open banking, this idea of making more secure and private exchange of data is step one. You know, reducing the amount of data exhaust out there is step two. It's very hard to monetize data when there's so much out there. Yeah. But if you can start to reduce that flow, then that's the, that is the logical next step. Does this have the opportunity then to, to have the ability to take this, if, it, if it's able to work in the banking sector, and, and be able to take it into other areas mm -hmm. and be able to take away some of the angst around data that we see just in general uh, with with people at the hospital or mm -hmm. in the retail sector mm -hmm. as well. And we've, we've seen this in other countries. So Australia is one where um, a consumer data right was passed, just singular right, which yeah. is a person owns their data and should be able to access it securely and safely. So 
They're starting with financial services, but then very quickly moving into energy and telecommunications. So it's not just, oh, I made these calls. It's how do you compare to others? Are you paying more or less? You know, are you utilizing, you know, from, a, you know, sometimes you can see your energy levels in your house. Like, But looking at that sort of transparency across industries is really interesting. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney in our studios in Philadelphia, joined by Jane Barrett, Chief Advocate. The officer for MX Technologies, and also with Mukul Pandya, editor in chief and executive director of Knowledge Award. Gene, uh, that this has all been really fascinating. I wonder if we could take a step back and talk a little bit about how data as currency evolved. Uh, could you help our listeners uh, go through that journey? So um, I'm hoping many of your listeners are at the beginning of their career because you're going to see this play out. Like it really is still early days, and if you think of how currency evolved. Right. For thousands of years, it was barter and trade. Yep. But, you know, if you're trading, you know, you know, you're getting, you know, some broccoli for a potato. At the moment with data, you're probably trading like a donkey for a potato. Right? But we're in this like, you know, barter and trade. Um, you know, I'm exchanging everything about my personal life to be able to see my friends, a picture of my friend's kids. Right. So that is not a fair value exchange. Um, but from a just pure market movement, the amount of value that has been generated in the world from data, this is a very natural pendulum swing back to like, hang on a minute. Yes, I feel like it's okay for, you know, be able to see my friend's pictures, but is it really? So do you feel then then we can head towards a time down the road, and you mentioned uh, about younger consumers being interested in this, where there can be, once again, more of a level trading field when we're talking about the use of data? I truly hope so. And I think what may be shocking to some people is that sometimes it's the most economically disadvantaged people whose data is worth the most from a financial services perspective. So you have predatory lenders that if you're Googling, you know, need credit quick, like those terms sell for a lot of money. Those people sell for a lot of money. And it is like if you had that awareness that you now had barter power, like that's huge. How do we best go about that? Maybe that might be the Mm $64,000 question here is how do you actually get to that point? Because I think some people would say, okay, does the government have to play a role in this? You know, is this a is this driven by the businesses, by the consumers themselves? Again, I think different countries are approaching in different ways. So GDPR across yeah. Europe has had a huge impact just around, oh, I have to give permission. Oh, I have to sign up. Oh, OK. So like that's a great like first tiny step. Yeah. Um, things like the the data right in Australia is a, a huge step. The U.S. has traditionally been let the industry solve for this. Um, and again, as financial services being like the largest industry by a factor of several, um, having large institutions drive the solution, you know, is great because they have the resources, but will it account for everybody? You know, does it account for all the different use cases? So I do believe that the regulatory bodies do have a role to play, um, whether it is the SEC around what is like a value exchange. So similar to currency exchange, what's a value exchange for data? Um, Whether it's the FTC, just around just business practices and overseeing that. But this idea of data stewardship, if not data fiduciary, is a new one. Um, And again, we have seen the value that data can produce. How can both 
How can regulators, institutions, consumer advocacy groups work together? And there are some industry working groups moving in this direction to, to really set up a framework that will work. The, the logical sort of direction in which uh, the argument that you present goes is for consumers themselves to be able to take control of the asset that they have created, which is their own data. Uh, and it seems to me that they are relatively weak compared to the huge technology giants, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles of the world that collect all this data. So how, how can the balance shift more in the direction of consumers starting to take control of their mm -hmm. own data? I think, I mean, the intellectual leap that needs to happen is that when there's a return on investment, am I going to spend the time to set up my digital life in a way that I'm granting and declining permissions or revoking permissions because there is a monetary reward for me? So it could be I save 20% off of, you know, airline fees for 20 people. It could be that I get a check for $120 from a big social media player. But until you actually start seeing those rewards, which do need to be that leap forward, um, it, it's going to be more challenging. But then there are, you know, the value add. And again, coming back to financial services, institutions and frankly, fintechs know so much about their customers. Mm -hmm. Again, just shift it to how do we provide better service? How do we actually help you make that next best action? How do we help you move your financial life forward? Which is a fundamental shift in the industry because to date it's been what's the next product you can buy? Right. Great, you've got a car loan. We get get you in, you know, get you up for a mortgage. It's like it's not, you know, that's not everyone goes on that same linear path. But at least right now, there isn't the driver to get to the point of saying, as you gave the example, getting a check from a social media mm -hmm. company. That driver is not there, and that creates that that unevenness that you talk about. Exactly. But again, I think the the interim step is value. Like how can how can tools and services be provided based on my data that actually help me as an individual, not me as a middle aged mom? Because, again, you market or talk to me as a middle aged mom, which I am. It will make me crazy. Right. If you yeah. actually look at my data history and the complexity of my financial life and talk to me about that, I'm in. Cool. You know, when you going back to your analogy of data as currency. When we think about uh, conventional currency, uh, regulators like the Federal Reserve mm -hmm. you know, have rules in place about how you regulate currency movements. And this happens all over the world. Mm -hmm. When you talk about data as currency, who's the logical regulator? And, and, and how, how should data as currency be regulated? It, it may well be a whole new regulatory standard and body, but it feels like in the U.S. someone like the FTC. It's just that the U.S. has such a complicated regulatory landscape. Most markets have a singular body overseeing all things, like, say, financial. And if it's currency, right, why is it the OCC? is the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Should it be falling under them? Maybe. But probably logically would be more like someone like the FTC. Just to push forward on the same same sort of theme, you, you referred to the regulatory environment in Europe uh, and also in Australia. Uh, which countries do you think have made the most progress in, in, in becoming aware that this is a serious issue mm -hmm. and also trying to find solutions to deal with it? So answering the second part of that question, the solutions seem to be on an industry-by-industry -industry basis. And mm -hmm. open banking really is probably the most high-profile solution to the problem, problem being data exhaust and you know lack of security and potential for breaches yep. out there. Um, from a, a country perspective, again, the UK and their open banking initiatives have actually been, again, mixed 
success, but for the most part, a great leap forward in terms of permissioning. If just that, you understand that you now have permission to grant and revoke access to your data. Um, Across Asia, you've got Hong Kong, you've got Japan, Australia, as I mentioned. Um, And then you've got on the other side, like Canada is still very, you know, doing a, a big multi-year learning exercise into what's gone on around the world. So there is no one leader, but there is a lot to learn from the different market approaches. And obviously, as you've laid out, there's there's seemingly a lot of opportunity that presents itself right now. But I would think also that, that, that there are probably a few hurdles that, that have to be crossed as well, which would be what in your mind? So uh, the human condition, like stasis, if it's not broken, I don't have to fix it. I truly hope it doesn't take a massive financial breach for this to accelerate forward. And again, I think the industry collaboration is moving in the direction that we're not waiting for a breach. Um, But that would certainly accelerate things. Could something be done even on a larger scale than just one country doing it on their own. Could you get a more global perspective? And I think that's a challenge when you think about GDPR Mm -hmm. and the European Union right now. They have enough issues themselves Mm -hmm. with 28 countries trying to work on one currency with the euro. I don't know if if you could put that together, but if if the path, if the thought process was the same of trying to prevent a bigger problem, then maybe you could get to that point. Yeah, and I think you look to the big global institutions. So City, for example, has stood up open APIs in nine different countries already. They've yeah. learned more than anyone. Like BBVA has a whole open banking platform that, mm. you know, they so there have been a lot of initiatives that have moved forward that um, have been very positive, are about customer outcomes. Um, but from a a multi-country approach, it is extremely challenging oh, because yeah. we keep talking about regulators and every country has their own regulatory regime. And, you know, should it be Amazon or should it be Facebook or Google or one of the big tech platforms to step up and say this is the way it's going to be? And, I mean, you saw it with the launch of Libro last month yeah. where, you know, multi-countries are pulling them in to, uh, to testify. Like this is new, very new territory. I mean, it's incredibly exciting territory. Um, but for the banking industry and finance to be going first is actually pretty great, just again, given the fiduciary standard. If you were to look to the future of data as currency, uh, what do you see as the biggest opportunities or challenges going forward? So what I would hope the biggest opportunity is that that increased transparency actually helps people move their financial lives forward. I think we're seeing massive, like, potential social issues with income inequality. Like, there are a lot of things that technology cannot solve for, for example, income levels, but there are a lot that it can solve for in terms of transparency and truly competitive offers and understand when you're being taken advantage of and what the, you know, predatory lenders are up to. So the opportunities, if we can help solve some of those systemic issues within the macroeconomic landscape, as well as down to the micro and the individual level, like that is huge and that's transformational. Um, some of the challenges is just this globally operationalizing this, um, getting to a point where 
the value exchange is something that is both transparent and functional. Um, and again, who oversees this? These are questions that are still open. But again, for anyone entering their career, potentially going into financial services, um, this is something that is incredibly exciting just because the chart, it's like its like digital in the 90s. The chart is yet to be path. No, path is, path is yet to be charted. <laughs> Jane, a pleasure meeting you. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks, Thank McCool. Thank you, McCool. Great to see you as always. Thanks, Dan. Jane Barrett, Chief Advocacy Officer for MX Technologies. Mukul Pandya, uh, Editor-in-Chief and Executive Director of Knowledge at Wharton. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.